You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Here we are. Uh, I know there have been preachers for the past two months or so that have gotten used to preaching to an empty room, but this is weird. Uh, Matt, Mason, Andrew... Uh, glad you could be with us this evening, yeah, uh, for the rest of you. I will be trying to uh, still look directly at you. Next week when we are doing this, I'm probably going to be doing some of this and some of this, uh, and that's going to be okay. We'll just get used to that as a way of transition for the next few months, I imagine. But my name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'm so glad to see you all here this evening. And uh, one small benefit of a slower life around our house for the past few months is that we've had more time to just read really good books together as a family. We're reading through the Chronicles of Narnia, the second time for our oldest boys now, and we have just finished up The Horse and His Boy. It is so good. And one of the themes of that story is a character who is lost without knowing his true identity, his true identity of actually being royalty, the long-lost son of the king. And it's just one of the oldest tropes in storytelling of a child separated from birth coming to knowledge of their royal origin from Sleeping Beauty to Rapunzel to the Pirates of the Caribbean to like every single Star Wars movie. And it doesn't always follow the same narrative arc, but the horse and his boy has a very sharp moment from life as an orphan through poverty and difficult survival to then transformation into royalty of belonging. And in that story, there's a very distinct outward transition in clothing from the same old impoverished rags to now new clothes of a prince. Well, last week in the first half of Colossians 3, we were thinking through Paul's encouragement to the Colossians to remember to be who you are. Be who you are by putting off who you were. And we saw that that phrase in verse 9, to put off the old self, that this is clothing language, to take off the old rags of living and the old rags of thinking that that's just who you are or the way things are, but that's not true. That's who you were. Now you belong to the king. So while we saw a hint of Paul then encouraging them of what to put on this week, Paul's going to just now hammer that home to now put on the clothes of Jesus, the royal clothes that are yours in Christ and that identify that you now belong to the family of God. And so we're going to think through Colossians 3, 12 through 17 tonight in two halves, that of put Christ on and then the second half of put Christ in. In verses 12 through 14, put on the character or the clothes of Christ in love by grace through faith. And then in verses 15 through 17, put in the peace and the word of Christ so that we are transformed even further from the inside out. So first of all, put Christ on. Having thought through last week of what to put off, Paul then says in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now, before we get to the specifics of these clothes, these clothes of Christ, let's again consider the indicative and the imperative, the declaration and the obligation, the if which comes 
before the then. Right in the middle of this command to put on, Paul can't help himself from another Mufasa moment. He says, put on then, but hang on, before he says, put on all of these things, he says, put on, hold on, remember who you are. Remember God's, you are God's chosen ones. You are holy, you are beloved. Now, now then put on compassionate hearts especially to an audience of Colossians who were a mixed bag of Jewish and Gentile Christians who were likely being strained by the undercurrent of disunity, by some arguing for a return to the law, the ways of the shadows, and perhaps an unspoken or even a spoken understanding of kind of like a a varsity and a JV Christian. The ethnic Jews, obviously the varsity. And sure, it's nice that you Turkish folks who have come to worship the God of the Old Testament will, will let you hang around now, I guess. Well, Paul has already gone after this kind of division throughout the book, and then very pointedly in verse 11 that we saw last week. But now he doesn't choose these three words unintentionally, these words of chosen and holy and beloved. These are all adjectives that get used over and over and over again to describe Israel in the Old Testament. And now he is applying these three adjectives to the whole of the Christian church, not, no, no matter their ethnic background. But these are all adjectives that the gospel writers even use over and over again to describe Jesus. So it's not as if these new Turkish Gentile Christians have come in to replace the Jews as God's new people. No, the promises of God made to Israel find all of their yes and amen in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. The past people of God or are absorbed into the present Son of God. And then the future people of God, now from all nations, get absorbed into the present Son of God. So what we have now is one new man, a new people of all tribes and all tongues and nations that are now joined together as a new body joined to their shared head, the Lord Jesus Christ. This entire section is a great wonderful passage to be read at a wedding. Perhaps you've heard this passage that Tom read for us just earlier, read at a wedding. This is a wonderful passage to have your kids memorize because they can't stop fighting at home. But as we're going to see, this is a passage about the unity of the church. So there is some deep theological intention behind these three words, chosen and holy and beloved. But again, it's a call to reflect on the present reality that comes before a call to obey. We do not put on compassionate hearts. We do not put on the clothes of kindness and humility and meekness and patience to become the chosen, holy, and beloved of God, but because we already are. That God has, before the foundation of the world, with your name in mind, if you are in Christ, he has fixed his infinite love on you in order that you may be, you may be made like him. So, Knowing that that is reality from eternity past, now clothe yourself in compassion. Compassion isn't natural. It isn't natural to understand and then feel sympathy toward the needs and the sorrows of others. But in love for others, now put it on. Put on compassion. Work toward being well known as someone who others would actually want to share their difficulties, their struggles, their needs with, because you are such a good listener, because you are willing to enter into their experience with them. Before just disagreeing with someone's philosophy or their politics or their general worldview, take some time to understand why 
they hold these positions, especially within the church because of the unity that you already share through the blood of Christ, which is then, this compassion is then put together with kindness, an attitude and a disposition of care and of goodness and of generosity toward others. Thinking of the needs of others to be more significant than your own. This is Philippians 2 stuff. Of kindness, of considering others. In which Philippians 2, Paul is also considering the humility of Jesus. The next piece of royal clothing that we are to intentionally put on. C.S. Lewis famously said that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but is thinking of yourself less. A humble person isn't just like a self-loathing doormat. But a humble person is a person who doesn't seek the demands and the rights of his own heart over and against the needs of others. This is a self-forgetful person. And again, we're especially talking about within the life of the church. So like body members, when one member of your body is sick, is broken, is diseased, is vulnerable, the rest of your body mobilizes energy and attention to protect and care for this vulnerable member. There's a self-forgetfulness there. Tom Wright says that kindness is a Christ-like attitude toward others, and humility is a Christ-like attitude towards oneself. He also says, then rounding out this initial list, that gentleness or meekness, as some translations have it, is the effect of a meek humility on one's approach to other people, where patience is the effect of that humble kindness on one's reaction to other people. So a gentle or meek approach to others, and then patience, a gentle or meek reaction to others. All of these are just putting on the clothing of Christ, to put on the clothes of the kingdom. Put them on. And again, Paul says not to put them on or else, Put them on or you might be in trouble of not being a Christian or something. But because you are already united to Christ, because you have him on as the character in which you are most living, because you are united to him, be like him. Put him on. And more, verse 13, bearing with one one another in love. Now, we'll keep going here in just a second. But this phrase, bearing with one another in love. On the one hand, this is just a continuation of everything Paul has already listed. On the other, I think bearing with one another might be one of the most countercultural things that we can do as a church. We now live in an American culture that has perhaps never been more socially and politically divided. Like, get on Twitter or Facebook for about seven seconds, and you'll immediately start seeing accusations of Nazi or communist or whatever on both sides of the aisle on seemingly all or every single topic. Like you could like put a recipe for a new banana bread on Facebook or something, and it probably takes about seven seconds for someone to call you a Nazi or a communist. Like if you disagree with me, you must be evil. We cannot just disagree on something. As we're getting more and more fatigued with societal lockdown and economic recession, we're beginning to see more and more anger and division over the best way forward out from this pandemic, best practices, how we should act or even react as Christians. And as November quickly approaches, can I just spill the beans and let you know that there are going to be some members of this church who are going to vote Republican, and there will also be some members of this church who will vote Democrat, 
And there will be some members of this church who will vote third party, and there will be some members of this church who will choose not to vote at all. As your pastors, we will never tell you specifically who you ought to vote for, or even more generally, who Christians ought to vote for. There are different principles of wisdom that Christians can consider when deciding how they will cast their vote. But some may come to different decisions over which of these principles weigh heavier than others. And it is not a pastor's or necessarily even a church member's job to seek out every bit of what we believe to be wrong thinking out there on the internet or out there in our church and then just correct it. Rather, I think here with Colossians 3 as a model, we are to move together relationally through life, slowly growing in wisdom, slowly growing in humility and understanding rather than just quick correction. And as a people of growing compassion and of kindness and humility and meekness and patience, it would do us really well. If we do happen to find ourselves in a conversation of politics with someone that we disagree with, to attempt to enter in, to bear with one another, to understand why your fellow church member might hold those views, and rather, in, in patience, being patient, rather than just assuming that this person is just naive, they're brainwashed, they're compromised, or worse, they're just evil. Rather, bearing with one another, creating space within our community for the freedom of the individual conscience in areas that the Bible doesn't specifically address, and then praying for growing wisdom amongst us all. While we're here, can I just say one more thing about social media? Uh, I'm not terribly active on the socials, uh, but I've had a couple of text and email conversations in the past couple of weeks that have begun to go a little haywire uh, and you want to know what immediately fixed those conversations? Not just sending more texts and emails and going and going and going, but you know what fixed it was just a quick phone call. A quick phone call to talk through whatever I thought was potentially, or what I even was potentially getting worked up about. Like study after study after study shows that overwhelmingly people do not change their minds on social media, or even with just written words on a screen with texts or emails. So going there to post your hot takes or to try to publicly correct all of the wrong thinking of others is more likely just going to get you a few backslaps from those who already agree with you and then anger from those who don't. Now, Facebook and Instagram feel like electricity or running water, something that we can't live without today, but I assure you, uh, Christians have lived just fine, have lived content and happy lives for millennia without social media. And I think we could also be fine, perhaps even happier without it for the next six months or in just uh, limited and constrained ways. To peel back the curtain on what's coming in a few verses, thinking about thankfulness, if you were just to do a just a time of observation and just looking back over the past few years of social media, are you thankful for it? Like if you were to, like just objectively speaking, are you thankful for Facebook or for Instagram or for Twitter? No doubt these things uh, can be wonderful gifts if used well, but do you kind of just wish that you could return to the simpler times of the 90s? Like, I've never said something as old man as that. <laughs> I wish we could go back to the 90s, back in my day. But anyway, like, there, times were simpler, weren't they? 
Now, we can, I think, use these things as good gifts and use them wisely. But if they are cultivating more anger, more anxiety, more frustration, more discontentment, then perhaps these are things that we have to do without. Okay, rant over. But speaking of being an old man, uh, well, the old man is something that's in play here. Because the old man is dying, but not yet dead, Paul then tells us to bear with one another in love because we will do and say things that are sinful and hurtful toward others. Let's look at the second half of verse 13. If one has a complaint against one another, and we will, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. I think we can think that when we join a church, we are entering into this like pristine community of Christians and they ought to always treat everyone and they certainly always ought to treat me perfectly, just as Jesus would treat me. That's who they say they are after all, right? But just apply that same framework to yourself. Like, are you perfectly loving, always compassionate, always kind, humble, and gentle, and patient? No, that's why you're a Christian. You've come in your weakness to Christ for forgiveness because of all of these ways in which we fail. And we have come to Christ for this now beginning slow work of transformation. So then why in the world would you expect others to live perfectly and then get thrown for a loop when Christians still sin? Like I'm observing this church and they're they're just so sinful. Yeah, we are. That's why we are Christians. Spurgeon once said, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. We are far worse than others even think we to be. So do not think ill of others. Rather, in the same way that Christ has offered grace and forgiveness to you, do not hoard that grace, but let yourself become a conduit of it. Not theoretically, but actually. Like right now, think of the person in our church. Yes, that person (laughs) whom you are still harboring frustration, whom you are still harboring anger toward, and then put on Jesus. Put on Jesus's clothes of forgiveness and move toward that person in reconciliation. If you are united to Jesus, you have put on his character Here's perhaps the most trite thing that I've ever said in a sermon, but what would Jesus do? How would Jesus respond and move toward this person that you are still frustrated and unreconciled with? How would he move in compassion and impatience and forgiveness toward this person? Put on Christ. In verse 14, and above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Again, not amorphous, theoretical, undefinable John Lennon love. That's something that we just all need. Like what in the world is he even talking about? But no, definable love. Put on the love of Christ, which has considered others to be more significant than himself in a self-forgetful humility, which seeks the glory of God and the good of others. Put on love. If If all of these things that we have thought about, Paul is saying, above all of these things, what are all these things? Compassion, patience, humility, gentleness, all these things. If all of these things are like, are the clothes of Christ, if they were like a cloak, then love is the brooch that holds it together. 
Love is the thing that binds it together in perfect harmony. Put on Jesus. Let his love and his character cover and clothe you that you might become more like him, that you might love others as Christ has loved you. But this is far more than just a merely external act of pretending to act like Jesus. Secondly now, as we have put Christ on, now the work of Christ is a transformative thing that transformed from the inside out. So put Christ in. In verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. No doubt this could be a verse that you meditate on and reflect through in through times of worry or of anxiousness. Paul might very likely be using this phrase, the peace of Christ, in contrast to the peace of Rome, a phrase or a slogan that would have been well known in this time and in this era, that of Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. The security and comfort that Jesus provides to his people is a felt and existential reality that we should not ignore or dismiss. But what's Paul's point here? Paul is not getting after the peace of Christ, which is an internal, existential peace. He'll do that in other letters. He will camp out um, in many other letters on the existential, felt security that Jesus gives to his people. But here, it is the peace of the church. And let the peace of Christ rule in your, plural, hearts, to which you were called in one body. He didn't randomly bring up in verse 11 the Scythians and the barbarians and the Greeks and the Jews and then just decide to move on to the wedding passage. The peace of Christ, which has come and overwhelmed a bunch of individuals in a tsunami of grace, has now come to recreate them now all together into one new man, a new body, and that we are to wear the clothes of Christ, yes, but then also to be transformed within the separation between God and man, now reconciled at the cross, is infinitely more than my small grievance against you. And so, now, let the peace of Christ dwell within you deeply. Let the peace of Christ, the Pax Christiana, the peace of Christ in this scenario doesn't just like build a fort within your heart to protect you from the impatient and unkind words of all of the other members of your church. No, the peace of Christ doesn't build a fort, but it rather marches out from both of our hearts, conquering mine and yours, my unreconciled member of my church, the peace of Christ marches out together, conquering our common enemy, not of one another, but our common enemy of sin, and establishing peace amongst his body. One pastor says Jesus is frustratingly unfussy about who he chooses to love. He does not discriminate, which is why it is worse than a tragedy when Christians do. It suggests that we think that we are somehow superior to those, to some of those for whom Christ died. Put in the peace of Christ and then let it march out. And then this little throwaway at the end of verse 15. And be thankful. It's a full sentence in our English translations. And be thankful. Going back to his thoughts on covetous last week, Covetousness last week, ingratitude is a disease which infects and destroys both people and churches. 
So if I see you receiving or experiencing something that I don't have, even more, if I see the majority of the church receiving or experiencing something that I don't have, I may be tempted to think that what some receive or experience as a gift, I come to now think that I am owed as a right. So some folks, perhaps many folks, receive a substantial paycheck. Some folks, perhaps many folks, are given the gift of marriage. Some folks, perhaps many folks, are given the gift of children or of a scholarship or paid-for education or of a financial inheritance or on and on and on. And then I might come to the conclusion that either God is not good to me or there must be something wrong with me to have not earned or received those same things that others are receiving, or those folks are unjustly receiving those things. If God or society truly knew how much more, or how, how, how virtuous I am, certainly more than they, then I would be getting the same things that they are. And then, none of those things out there are gifts anymore, aren't they? but they just become demands or rights based on what I think that I have earned or deserve. But to quote one writer, we are so often disappointed by God not giving us what he never promised us. We are so often disappointed by God not giving us what he never promised us. This is not at all to diminish the very real difficulty, the very real struggle of not having some of these things, especially when so many others are receiving these things, but the antidote for these things and for the, and the, antitude, the antidote of this struggle is gratitude. Of gratitude for what God has given. Of gratitude for belonging to a family. Of this church, of weeping with those who weep and then rejoicing with those who rejoice. That said, in talking with so many of you over the past several months, we want to talk more about these things and not less, confronting them head on. The last several months have been more difficult for some of you than others because of isolation. You don't have a spouse or kids or uh, family, a big family around the house to experience life with, and so life has been hard the past few months. Lord willing, sometime in the next few months, we're considering doing another Saturday seminar, similar to what we did on parenting last fall. This spring, now we're likely going to do a new seminar on singleness. Lord willing, this would be something that, like many singles and folks without kids, attended the parenting seminar last fall, that this spring, folks from all ages, single or married, Folks would attend and consider then these things as we move together as one body, as the family of God. So more details on that to come, but hopefully that can be something that is encouraging for all of us. But the peace of Christ, the peace of Christ is not just a felt existential reality. It marches out and it conquers sin. It gives peace to and reconciles the body. But then Paul gives even more concrete and specific means for inner transformation. In verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ, not just the peace of Christ, but let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It could be that Paul is referring to merely the memorized and held traditions of Jesus, his teaching ministry that were already beginning to, beginning to float around the Mediterranean world, later to then be codified in the Gospels. 
the words of Christ. More likely, though, based on what he's said in this letter and elsewhere, he is referring to the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. And then, even as Peter talks about, and Paul uh, talks about about Paul's letters in 2 Peter 3, there's a likely growing reality that these apostles and churches were already placing their, their writings, these apostolic writings, alongside the Old Testament in authority. So, let all of that, let all of what we now call the Bible, the word of Christ, dwell in you richly. But again, this is corporate. I've read someone once say that our understanding of so much of the Bible would change if English translators would just use the word y'all. And y'all is definitely the right word in Colossians 3.16. The you there in your English translation is second person plural. Let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly. And this, this verse, Colossians 3, 6, 16, certainly applies to a personal quiet time of spending time in meditation and prayer through what God has said and done in his word, letting it get down in there, dwelling richly. But do you see what Paul has in mind here? The way that he has in mind for the Bible to really get put in and begin working transformative, transformatively is corporately, is together. Not just reading the Bible in the morning and then checking the box and then moving on to the real parts of your day, but that God's words are beginning to become part of our bloodstream and our DNA so that when we do meet together over coffee or lunch or even in more formal gatherings like GC or together on Sundays, we might actually be able, empowered and constrained by the Spirit, to teach and admonish one another. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly so that we might be able to teach and admonish one another. This isn't just something that pastors do or your GC leaders do, but all of us, part of one body, we are to speak the word to one another. But we cannot speak the word of Christ without it first being there. We cannot give away what we do not, do not first have. And you want to know how the word of Christ gets even further down? Well, Paul goes on. By singing, by singing the psalms together, by singing songs of memorized and rich theology, perhaps some that are accompanied with instruments and some that aren't. We aren't entirely sure what he means in the difference between hymns and spiritual songs there. But do you see what the purpose is of this singing? The purpose of singing is not that you merely have a particularly moving worship experience. Though what a wonderful byproduct that is. But that we sing to each other. That I benefit by hearing your singing voice. Singing words of faith. That I know of the doubts and the struggles that you have and that you are experiencing this week. But that you are singing by faith and hanging on to the promises of God. And that we then become mutually edified in our singing together, which is why Zoom singing is just such a bummer. But we also, in verse 16, he also goes on to say that we also sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Along with each other, another audience, our primary audience in our singing, 
is God. And again, this is not necessarily so that we might have some particularly moving encounter or a worship experience. The encounter is with the living Christ through his word. The singing is then what shakes that word down on in, and then it solidifies in there through our singing. Christians are a singing people. Not so that we can necessarily have our emotions drummed up, though that can happen, and praise the Lord for that, but that we can grab hold of the promises of God, that, we, that, his, uh, that his word can just grab on and then transform. I wish we could spend like an entire sermon on Colossians 3.16 today, and maybe we will someday. But thankful worship to God isn't just what you do in your quiet time. Thankful worship to God isn't just what we do when guitars are playing on Sunday afternoons. Thankful worship to God then is everywhere in, in everything. Verse 17, Paul says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Worshiping God in thankfulness in our workplaces and in our GCs, on Zoom or in this building. Waking up and falling asleep, watching Netflix and reading a book, playing cards or listening to music, whatever you do, do it in thankfulness. And this is actually uh, perhaps some helpful tool in helping us think through whether we should do some things or not. We ought to, as Christians, in whatever we do, be able to operate in a mode of thankful worship. And if there are some activities that we would like to participate in or things that we'd like to do or think about or watch or listen to or whatever it may be, but we can't do so in thankfulness to God. Well, this might be a suggestion in our consciences that perhaps this is something that we can do without. And yet, like the rest of these royal clothes, thankfulness, gratitude is not something that comes naturally. Thankfulness is a cultivated quality. Now again, if, if I begin to think that I'm owed all of these things in life as rights, I won't be thankful when the gifts appear because I've earned them. I've like paid my taxes of righteousness and now of course I get what the government is going to give me in roads or in schools or whatever else. But the gifts that God gives, every gift is not something that I have owed because of my taxes of righteousness. I am owed nothing. And if I am owed nothing, if my very next breath is grace, then you better believe that a great cup of coffee or a bowl of ice cream is kindness to be enjoyed. Today is a gift from God to be stewarded well, but to also be enjoyed, whether you have a lot or a little whether you have what you expected or if you don't. We are so often disappointed by God, not giving us what he never promised. But what has he promised? He has promised for those who had come to him in brokenness and in humility, in repentance of their sin, and in faith. He has promised life and joy and peace and salvation and adoption and kindness and grace, when? When will we get these things? When will we experience them? When our jobs return to normalcy? When the economy is feeling more secure? When we don't have to wear masks anymore? When there's a vaccine? Or even when we die? 
when Christ returns, certainly when Christ returns, we will feel all of these things culminated now once and for all. But these promises of God to be experienced and felt and then held onto are not just future things. Peace, security, the kindness of God are not gifts that you experience when you finally get married or you finally have kids or when you graduate school or you get a new job or a new promotion, but they are to be had and experienced in Christ today. Thankfulness for his cross and his resurrection then will from the inside out give a transformed life of gratitude and of thankfulness. If you are in Christ by faith, you are the boy king or the girl queen, estranged from the family but now come home. Putting off the old life of estrangement and now putting on the new life of belonging and of living more and more into the identity of the family name. This is good news. And it's something to be held on to and grown in, to be put on and to be put in, to be transformed from the inside for the rest of eternity. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your kindness to us in Christ. You indeed are the giver of every good gift. And so God, we pray that we would more and more live every hour and minute and second of our life in thankful worship, in gratitude for what you have done for us in Christ, the reconciliation that we experience at the cross, the reconciliation that then doesn't just stop at the cross, but then forms us together in Christ as your people. Help us to grow in love for one another, in patience and in forbearance, Make us humble, make us self-forgetful, but in greater love for you and in love for one another to be made more and more into the image of Christ. And it's in Christ's name that we pray all these things in great hope and in great faith. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www dot Christchurchabq.com.